Welcome to the Littler Workplace Policy Institute podcast. Insider briefings on the latest legislative and regulatory developments affecting employers. Thank you, and hello everyone, and welcome to the Workplace Policy Institute's monthly insider briefing call for July. I'm Ivise Schumann, co-chair of Littler's Workplace Policy Institute. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, um, an agency within the Department of Labor, is tasked with setting and enforcing workplace safety standards. OSHA has recently seen a great deal of regulatory activity, which should not come as too much of a surprise. The scope of OSHA's purview means that their regulations impact an enormous range of workplaces across all industries. Here today to examine what OSHA has been up to recently, what to expect from the agency in the future, and the implications for your business is Littler shareholder Ben Huggett. Ben, thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. Um, Ben, at the beginning of 2015, OSHA made significant changes to how severe injuries are reported. How has this implementation gone? And has it caused any changes in how investigations are conducted? It has changed things quite a bit. As most employers are probably aware, in the past, OSHA has required the reporting of fatalities that are work-related and the hospitalization of three or more employees, which they defined as a catastrophe. These new rules required the reporting of the hospitalization of any single employee Uh, the reporting of any amputation, which was also defined to include the loss of a fingertip without bone, and that's really come to be a significant number of these cases, and also to require reporting for any loss of an eye, which OSHA defined as the actual physical loss of the eyeball, not just a blinding. Those cases OSHA estimated were going to be 25,000 reports a year, Um, And given that OSHA, in the year prior to enacting these rules, in fiscal year 2014, had conducted 36,304 inspections, adding 25,000 new reports of what can only be termed as seminal safety events uh, was quite a significant increase. And it led a lot of us to wonder how OSHA was going to handle this because they simply did not have the resources, personnel-wise, time-wise, to conduct inspections of 25,000 additional matters. And yet these matters are, again, seminal safety events, so how could the agency possibly ignore them? And that really was the thing that we were looking for, and now that we have a full years of experience with it, uh, tells us how this has, in fact, changed inspections. One of the first things that happened was OSHA rolled out a a non-mandatory appendix, which was a root cause evaluation of the injury or illness that was reported because it resulted in a hospitalization, amputation, or loss of an eye. Basically, what OSHA was doing with this form was flipping an inspection on its head. Instead of OSHA sending an inspector out to investigate a workplace issue, they asked the employer to do that in the context of this uh, multi-page form with a lot of leading questions and uh, loaded concepts and submit it back to OSHA. In evaluating that form, uh, a great many management side defense attorneys who handle OSHA matters 
independently came to the conclusion this form was not beneficial to employers, and we recommend strongly against utilizing it. Now, OSHA's only response to that would be to actually conduct a physical inspection. So they were trying to avoid having to do inspections of all of these 25,000 estimated cases because they knew they simply couldn't do it and trying to have the employer do it for them. Of course, nothing great ever really happens for an employer once OSHA sends an inspector out. So it's awfully hard to pass up an opportunity to submit a response to them and see if we can avoid an inspection. And what has been largely successful in that regard is sending a narrative written response identifying the issues that were identified in the, that resulted in the reporting, uh, what the employer's done in response to that. And one of the main benefits of preparing our own narrative response to these instead of using OSHA's form is you don't have to answer all of the questions on the OSHA form. Uh, you don't have to admit guilt to any particular OSHA violation. Um, and it's not obvious necessarily because you don't have a whole question on the form that you say didn't answer and it's left blank that would obviously beg a follow-up question from OSHA. And we've been largely successful in that. And having had a full year of experience with this, it, it has been interesting to see how OSHA deals with these. And they recognize that for the year ending last year, for a full year of this, they had about 48% of all hospitalizations got resulted in actual physical inspections. It means the majority of them were dealt with in terms of the employer's response and then just simply closing the file based on that response. On the amputation side, OSHA inspected 58% of all amputations that were reported. So there's a significantly higher group in expectation than that any amputation that you report will result in an inspection. And that's important for employers to know as they prepare for and deal with these. You may get the opportunity to submit a written response and not have to deal with inspection, but there's also a good chance that you will. The other major part of this change was the requirement that all of the state programs where OSHA has given back authority to operate safety and health protections to an individual state where they enact a state program that's at least as effective as federal OSHA, and there are 22 such states which regulate the private sector, they all had to adopt the same reporting requirements effective January 1 of 2016. And all but four of those have. There are four states that haven't finished their regulations and haven't gotten around to it yet. So in those states, Maryland being one of them closest uh, to me here in Philadelphia, um, where you don't have to report the hospitalization of a single employer, employee or the amputations as of yet, and there's really nothing to be gained. Maryland would be happy to take your report and uh, conduct an inspection, but uh, you don't have to do it by law yet until they complete their regulations. And that is a finding that we have seen in the state's plans that have adopted it. They are conducting inspections at a much higher rate than federal OSHA did. Um, and that is generally true for most of the state plans in all forms of their inspections. They tend to do more inspections than federal OSHA, and it's certainly true with regard to these. So it has been a pretty significant change for employers. Um, well, thank you, Ben, for that. Um, turning to another topic, um, in May, OSHA published its final rule on electronic reporting of workplace injuries and illnesses. 
What does the rule require employers to do? How will the data be published, and do you foresee any problems with it? The Improved Tracking of Electronic Injury and Illness Reporting is the name of the rule, and it's a little misleading because electronic reporting is just one aspect of the rule. Um, until recently, that aspect of the rule is part that's received the most media coverage and discussion among employers. And the requirements there are that work sites with 250 more employees, and that's a single work site, not an entire company, but a very large individual work site. Those work sites, beginning in 2018, will have to report all of their injuries and illnesses on an annual basis to OSHA in electronic format. You will have to upload the entire OSHA Form 300 log and the information from the OSHA Form 301, which is the supplemental information detail behind each case on the 300 log. That will all have to be uploaded, and then OSHA has said that they will publish that to their website and make that available for anyone to see. For employers with work sites between 20 and 249 employees who fall into a specific list of high hazard industries, which in fact includes all of construction and all of manufacturing and a great many of other uh, types of workplaces, those companies with sites of 20 to 249 employees each will have to submit the total number of recordable cases and the other information from the Form 300A, which is the annual summary. And that information will be posted by OSHA to its website. And for many employers, that will be a significant obligation. I was talking with a company that operates grocery stores, more than 3,000 of them around the country. They have less than 250 employees in almost all stores, but almost all stores also have more than 20. As a covered high-hazard industry, they will be submitting more than 3,000 reports every year once these new requirements go into effect. But, as I said, they don't go into effect for those until uh, 2018, 2017 is the 300A for just the uh, large size 250 or more employee work sites and then all of it in 2018. So those are really down-the-road considerations, but things that employers need to think about because they are going to require purely electronic submissions, so having the information in an electronic format capable of being uploaded uh, is going to be something that employers are going to have to do. And they're going to want to make sure all of the cases on the log are accurate and correct because it's going to be forward-facing information that can be seen on the Internet. But as I mentioned at the outset of my comment, the title of this rule is a little bit misleading, in fact, quite a bit misleading, because there are three other elements to this program and these rules which OSHA didn't highlight, and there wasn't a lot of media coverage on initially. And those are the requirement that the employer inform employees about uh, their right to report an injury or illness without retaliation. OSHA's made that relatively simple by saying you can accomplish that by filing by posting the new OSHA poster. Uh, you've always had to have a poster identifying OSHA and the ability of employees to raise issues there. But they've got a new version that specifies that injuries can be reported without fear of retaliation. It also specifies in the new rules that you have to have a procedure 
for reporting in injuries and illnesses, and that procedure cannot deter or dissuade anyone from reporting. And that's the new portion. Employers have always had to inform employees of their right to report injuries and have a means by which to do it, um, but now OSHA is very specifically in the regulations requiring that it not deter or dissuade anyone from reporting an injury or illness. And by that, OSHA means that it can't have too many procedural steps, have personal shaming, um, or other components that would discourage someone from actually reporting an injury and illness. And in their discussion of that, one of the things that OSHA raises that will be difficult for many employers is the idea that reporting an injury or illness cannot be mandated on an immediate basis. Many, many, many employers have policies that require employees to report immediately uh, when they have a workplace injury or illness. OSHA finds that that will discourage an employee if they believe that they will be disciplined for not having reported it immediately. If they wait a couple of hours or if they wait a day and report something and then they're going to be disciplined because of a late report, then they're not going to report at all. And so OSHA wants employers to exercise caution in their procedure and you know, move back from disciplinary procedures related to injuries and illnesses. Uh, indeed, they have a lawsuit pending in the United States District Court for the District of Delaware over an employer's immediate reporting requirements that resulted in the termination of two employees. That was before these rules were issued, but uh, it shows just how far the agency is going in regard to that issue. The final element of real note in the new record-keeping tracking rules is the addition of an anti-retaliation provision into OSHA's regulations themselves. Section 11C of the OSHA Act has always protected employees who make complaints about safety and health issues to their employer or who testify in an OSHA proceeding or otherwise support the overall actions of the Act in promoting health and safety. OSHA has always enforced that in the manner spelled out in the statute, which says that when an employee makes a complaint, there will be an investigation, and if it has merit, there will be a lawsuit filed in U.S. Federal District Court. But that requires that OSHA wait for there to be a complaint and then requires that there be, in fact, a federal court lawsuit before any action can be taken. And OSHA has determined in this rulemaking that they believe that takes too long and is too cumbersome a process, so they are now writing this into their regulations so that they can purportedly issue a citation and penalty to an employer for any action that would be allegedly retaliatory in reporting an injury or illness. And then the method of review of that and enforcement of that would have to be through the Administrative Law Judge and Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. Now, of course, the Administrative Law Judges and the Review Commission have never heard these cases in their 45 years of existence because they've always been filed in U.S. Federal District Court. So that would be a rather significant change. Also changing, of course, would be the fact that your average OSHA safety inspector would be the one conducting this investigation uh, and issuing a citation on that basis, which they too have never done before. So it would be a massive change in the structure and operation of retaliation claims, none of which replaces Section 11C. 
So employers would be faced with having to deal with both a Section 11C complaint, potentially, as well as a citation, uh, with no means of consolidating those two actions. As part of the anti-retaliation provisions, although not mentioned at all in the text of the regulation, OSHA commented in its preamble language that they believed that safety incentive programs and drug testing, which follow an injury or illness in the workplace, can be considered to be retaliatory actions that will deter or dissuade an employee from reporting an injury or illness. And therefore, OSHA recommends that employers not have drug testing policies and safety incentive policies, except in certain circumstances that they discuss. Again, these are provisions that are not anywhere mentioned in the text of the rule. Indeed, they weren't mentioned in the prior rulemaking process steps uh, to any specific degree. And as a result of that, because of the uh, contradiction to the Section 11C provisions as set out in the Act itself and the lack of following the rulemaking process uh, and attempting to regulate these broad subjects of retaliation, drug testing, and safety incentive programs, a broad coalition of national associations and employers have gotten together to challenge this rulemaking. Um, and in fact, Littler has prepared the uh, complaint and litigation challenging that, and we filed it on Friday uh, in the United States District Court for the District of Texas. So we are hoping to get a preliminary injunction prior to August 10th so that these provisions do not go into effect uh, and greatly limit what are uh, valuable and important considerations in many, many employers' safety programs. So there will be more to come on this, and we will certainly let people know as things progress. Well, thank you, Ben. Um, and also, can you please tell us about uh, two final rules OSHA published earlier this year in March on whistleblower protection provisions? Whistleblower protection, which is really you know a follow-on to Section 11C, which they started in 1971, uh, continues to be something that a whole separate division of OSHA does. They've got investigators lined up for that. And because they set it up as a separate group of investigators, long ago Congress recognized that they could give OSHA new whistleblower retaliation things without having to fund jobs for inspectors to review those matters and pursue them. So some of the latest two were the Food Safety Modernization Act and the Moving Ahead for Progress in the 21st Century Act. And the, that one, MAP 21, actually deals with automotive parts suppliers and providing whistleblower protections for any employee who's working on, say, an airbag and knows of defective issues and reports that is protected from uh, retaliatory claims. And all OSHA has really done here is publish some procedural rules for how those complaints will be handled and implemented. Um, both of these are of the modern variety, which means uh, they can be filed anytime 180 days after an alleged adverse action. The adverse action only needs to be a contributing factor related to their protected conduct. Um, and then the employer must provide by clear and convincing evidence that they would have taken the adverse action regardless. Um, so that general process and then proceeding through an administrative law judge uh, procedure before the Department of Labor Office of Administrative Law Judges uh, is set up. 
so they're simil handled similarly to many, many of the other 22 statutes for which OSHA administers the whistleblower protection provisions. And, and then for the first time in 25 years, OSHA is raising the citation penalties for violations. What are they being raised to and when? And what, if any, impact do you think that this will have on OSHA enforcement? Well, this is the first increase in a long time, since 1990, uh, because there was a budgetary provision which prohibited uh, the Social Security Administration, the IRS, and OSHA from raising its penalties uh, in line with inflation. Every other governmental agency did, uh, but those three were prohibited. And now the Social Security Administration and OSHA have been set free in the Bipartisan Budget Act of 20. 16 uh, to now raise their penalties and they were in fact told to raise them as a catch-up measure to be where they would have been if they had in fact gotten an annual in increase every year since 1990 and that has resulted in what's now calculated at a 78.15 percent increase to the penalties so an other than serious or serious OSHA citation was previously cited at a maximum penalty of $7,000. They will now be cited at a maximum penalty of $12,471. And it seems a little odd as we look at this to see federal penalty amounts stated with such provision down to a $471 amount, um, but in fact, the analysis behind that and the requirement in the Budget Act was that the old practice was always to round down to the nearest thousandth, and that artificially kept penalties low by rounding down on such a continuous basis. So henceforward, these increases for inflation will go to the exact dollar amount, and we will always have odd-looking numbers uh, showing up in penalties. In addition to serious and other than serious violations, uh, OSHA's higher classifications are, of course, repeat and willful violations. And those will be increasing from $70,000 each to $124,709 for each potential item. And a failure to abate penalty will move from $7,000 to $12,471 per day. This will be applied on top of OSHA's existing changes in 2010 to how it calculates reductions in penalties and amounts. And on average, we think the average OSHA citation may now be in the range of $9,000 for a single serious or other than serious violation. So a simple two citation inspection will now be more than $10,000 more than $15,000 probably. And we think that that's going to cause a lot of consternation for small businesses um, and not some little consternation for any large organization uh, because these penalties are no longer going to be something that's considered a cost of doing business or maybe within a manager's authority to resolve at an individual level. So it is likely to increase the OSHA contests and litigations regarding penalties. And, of course, the other aspect that may is that OSHA intends to apply these effective August 1 of 2016 to any pending inspection as soon as citations are issued. So if you had an inspection related to issues at the end of March 
uh, of this year that has been going on, and OSHA decides to issue it on July the 31st, you'll be at the lower, older penalty levels. But if they were to issue it on August the 1st, it would be at a higher penalty level. And there's some inherent unfairness in how that goes about. So it remains to be seen how we'll deal with that in individual cases. Well, thank you. And then finally, this Zika virus has been in the news quite a lot lately. And can you explain what the government is doing and also how employers should be taking action to deal with Zika? Well, OSHA and the government generally haven't done a whole lot. They've provided some information and resources, and I think we're seeing more of that as we're 25 days away from the Olympics and there's more consideration of travel. Um, most of what has been presented has simply been travel advisories and precautions that you can take in providing employees with insect repellent and wearing long clothing that helps prevent bites um, and things along those lines. Um, OSHA has put out a fact sheet on that. They also recommend for any workplace that has standing water in small containers, bottles, little things that may be outside where mosquitoes can breed, um, that you work on getting rid of those so that you can avoid it. But thankfully, there have been no transmission cases within the continental United States. We have had transmission in Puerto Rico, in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and in American Samoa. Um, but other than providing protections in the form of repellent and longer clothing to help avoid that um, and doing some education with your employees on avoiding those situations, there's not a lot that employers can directly do. One of the things that we have seen is questions about both requiring an employee to engage in travel to an area where Zika is transmitted or in prohibiting employees from returning or dealing with those scenarios. And of course, in an employment context that does not present a direct threat to others, employers are not entitled to make those limitations on employee travel. So if an employee is going to the Olympics and coming back, they don't present a direct threat to anyone. It would only be if a mosquito bit them and then bit person number two that there would be a possibility of that transition. So it really isn't something that we can directly control other than through education and information and trying to make sure that they avoid getting bit while they're visiting the Olympics or any other area with active Zika transmissions. Um, well, Ben, thank you so much for this very informative discussion about all that OSHA has been up to lately. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. My pleasure. And for everyone who called in, thank you. Um, for taking time out of your afternoon or perhaps morning um, to listen to our Workplace Policy Institute discussion today. Um, thank you very much, and uh, have a good rest of your day. And that concludes our call. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.